You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2023 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Dear Father in Heaven, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for today. And I pray that you'll be with us as we discuss how to reach some specific groups that are here in Michigan. Thank you so much. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to just review our one of my favorite quotes on the topic of reaching the world rapidly, of course. Earlier in the week, we went through how I discovered that there are about 7,000 language groups that are completely unreached by the gospel. And within all those language groups, there are about 3.15 billion people. So about 43% of the world's population has not been reached by the gospel, not only the Adventist message, by the, but the gospel in general. So, um, wow, when I discovered that, I thought, wow, what would it take? Because we're told that the gospel is to go to the world in this generation, in our generation. So I thought, how? How can we do that? And most of them are in unreached, I mean, like the 1040 window, hostile nations or resistant nations. But so it, it seems daunting, it seems impossible, but God's biddings are enablings. And this quote shines a light on God's strategic plan, his method of how we can reach the world rapidly. I love this quote. When I found it, it was just as though a, a, an excerpt from God's strategic planning committee in heaven just somehow drifted to earth and we caught it. And starts out, if we were quick in discerning the opening providences of God, we should be able to see in the multiplying opportunities to reach many foreigners in America a divinely appointed means of rapidly extending the third angel's message into all the nations of the earth. Not many, not most, but all the nations, including the hostile nations, including nations where you can't get missionary visas. But God has a way to do it, and in his providence, he has brought them into our very doors and thrust them, as it were, into our arms that they may learn the truth and do our work we could not do in getting the light before men of other tongues. And so, in short, here are some of the terms that we use. and here: <laughs> Refugees, asylum seekers, immigrants, international students are God's way for us to reach the world rapidly with the gospel. And so today we'd like to go into some specific groups in Michigan and some tips on reaching them. Um, so this is not an exhaustive list, but Michigan, when I researched Michigan, I found that of all the states, the, the largest refugee populations in Michigan speak Arabic, um, especially the Detroit area. There are more, there are... Excuse me, I used to, I know there's a lot of 
people, um, colored people in Detroit, quite a few. There's like the whole city almost. Yes, yes. There are more. Uh, I'm trying to remember which country. There are more people from, I could be Iraq, don't, don't quote me. There's, there's, a country, there's a country from the Middle East that has fewer of its population there than there are in, in Detroit. That's my understanding. So there's a huge Muslim population in Detroit. And I'm not an expert in Muslims, but my, my colleague, my friend, Gabby Phillips, Gabriella Phillips, is, and so I will give you her information. Um, we're going to just touch on these briefly, and then we'll go uh, dive into each one. The Lao and Zomi are from Southeast Asia. The Lao are from the most bombed country in the world, and we discussed it a little bit earlier. During the Vietnam War, our government was bombing Laos because the Ho Chi Minh Trail that China was using to supply arms to northern Vietnam to try to keep Vietnam as communist um, came through northern Laos. So we, as the United States, was bombing the Ho Chi Minh Trail to try to cut off the su ammunition supply line to North Vietnam. We were also and right, also trying to prevent it. And a lot of promises to the mom and trying to supply them. Eventually, we left them all to cover the country from Japan. And then they had the ball dropped on them, and so now they've been persecuted. Yes, I wish I could have gotten all that on the recording, but I will. <laughs> um, but basically, he was saying that, um, yes, we were also making lots of promises to Laos and to the Hmong in Laos. And, but when communism actually took over Laos, many of them were killed. Those who could fled into Thailand, which is where I met them when I went as a student missionary working in refugee camps there. And, um, but I actually, at, at Wisconsin camp meeting, I actually met um, the man, a man who had, before becoming an Adventist, he had been in the military in that area of Southeast Asia, and it was his job to actually go in and change the official records of where the... <laughs> the strikes were occurring Right. Actually, we were bombing the Ho Chi Minh Trail, but it was his job to go in and assign names of places in North Vietnam that we were supposedly bombing because the Vietnam War was not popular. So, thank you. So, uh, more about the Lao people in a minute. Um, the Zomi people are from Myanmar, former Burma. And uh, there are Zomi <coughs> in primarily Grand Rapids and Battle Creek. And... We'll talk more about that. The Kinyarwanda people are from 
Kinyarwanda-speaking people are from the Congo, Burundi, and Rwanda. And the Nepalese from Bhutan are what I believe from my research to be the most open and yet least reached refugee group in North America now. But I'm going to do a little bit more of a deep dive here. So the Lao, this is just to keep me on track. So the Lao are very similar to the Thai. And I, when I went to Thailand to work, I was working in a Lao refugee camp, working with the Lao people. And the Lao are Thai and Lao. Uh, they're sister countries, and so they're very similar. The language is similar. They're, uh, Thailand is called the Land of Smiles. And Thai and Lao people are very pleasant. They're fun to be with. They're very hospitable. They will invite you uh, to their homes, invite you to eat. They'll, they're just very gracious. And a couple of things that I learned working with the Thai and the Lao are that for example, they they really value gentleness and humility. And so it's it's most polite, for example, uh, to to position yourself lower than anyone older than you. Um, I remember there was a a Thai girl from Isan, which used to be part of Laos. So Thai and Lao are very intertwined in their history, their culture, and everything. I remember going to, um, someone had brought me some food, and they're always giving. Uh, they brought us some food, and I noticed that in their culture, when someone brings you food, then, like, if you take them food in a container, they will fill the container with food when they bring the container back. So um, our neighbor had brought us some food, so I, I think I had fixed something. So I put it in the container, and I took it over to the neighbor. I was so proud of myself that I was <laughs> learning the culture. And um, I got back, and the, the girl staying with me, Daisy, said, how could you do that? And I thought, what do you mean, how could I do what I do wrong, you know? And usually they're not, Thai people are not, typically critical. In fact, she was, she was Amerasian, her father was American. So this is not, her response to me is not typical for her culture. But um, she said, how could you do that? I, I was so puzzled. I thought I was being very culturally uh, appropriate. And I said, what, what did I do? She said, you just stood there at the door. You didn't even sit down. <laughs> I realized, oh, yes. <laughs> so, but they, they're very understanding of us as Americans. They understand our culture. But still, it's refreshing to them. Like when you, you know, I stood at the door talking to them. Whereas to be culturally appropriate, the best thing would have been for me to, you know, when I came in the door, would have been for me to just sit down and men sit cross-legged. This is the most polite way for women to sit. 
So if you visit a Lao home and you sit like this, especially if there are people older than you, it, it will be heartwarming to them if you position yourself physically lower. And if you walk in front of someone, you know, just try to, try to avoid having your head higher than someone else, especially if two people are talking to each other. I remember I was in Thailand teaching English, and I was invited to a large elementary school. And the whole school, they had them gathered in a, it was like a, a gym, except it, without walls. It was a pavilion because they needed, you know, the breeze because it's hot there. And I, I asked a question and I had a prize for whoever got the right answer. And a girl way in the back had the right answer. And so I invited her to come and get the prize. And to my surprise, she, first I, I need to tell you that everyone was sitting on the yeah. cement I, I think I think they must have had mats. I'm trying to remember the specifics, but but there was you know they were seated very uh, orderly, but the, but on the floor. And when she came from the back to the front, she didn't walk up because everyone was seated on the floor. She actually did this. She just and I thought, oh my. Her legs must be aching because it was a long way. And I felt bad for her. <laughs> but that's how much, that's how careful they are to make sure that they are physically lower than anyone their age and above, for sure, to show respect. It's a very mannerly culture, very generous. Um, and most Lao people here have sofas in their living room, and so you won't need to be too careful about that. But just, but just an awareness of that, especially if there are older people or if there are not enough people there. Um, you could just sit on the floor, and they may insist that you sit on the sofa or something, because that would be their way of honoring you. Um, and you can. Just assure them it's, as it's, that it's fine, or else you can take their invitation. Either way is fine. But um, like the Bible says, take the lower seat, and then, you know. Have they kept the culture of taking the shoes off the pavilion? Oh yes. Okay. Thank you for mentioning that. So they always take their shoes off before they come in the house, which actually it's interesting. Abraham. Moses, the Moses at the burning bush, God said, take off your shoes, the place you're standing on is holy ground. So actually, when, when our missionaries went into Thailand, they went to Thailand before they went to Laos, um, and built churches and said, oh, just wear your shoes and it's... What, what our missionaries were accidentally, not intentionally, but inadvertently teaching them was, well, this God is not, not worthy, not worthy. as much as the cultural. Problem. Right. In their temples, they would never wear shoes in the temple. And so when, when we go, you know, when we build churches with cement floors and put no mats and just have them wear their shoes. They wear their shoes to the market. 
And then yeah, my kids would sometimes kick their shoes off when going into a store, and yet the store culture didn't have that. Uh -huh. They're just so used to kicking their shoes off almost any time before entering a building. It's the, because the churches now are a plethora of shoes out front of the yes. So if they had made that mistake earlier, they corrected it. Amen. I'm happy to hear that. That's beautiful. So... The Lao, and the Lao are a very gift-giving culture. I mentioned that they brought us food. And so when we were church planting among the Lao in Sacramento, I remember there were times I'd go to the store and there would be, I remember one time specifically, cabbage was on sale. That's the ch one of the cheapest vegetables you can buy. And so I just bought the few extra heads and I, and I just dropped one off here and there we had the homes of some refugee families. I mean, it cost me less than a dollar per head that time, just a few cents per head. But I, when I took it to people, they were so grateful. It just meant so much to them that I would think of them. And and when they give things to each other, it doesn't necessarily have to be fancy. And they're people that share and share a life. If you go to their homes during a meal, they will never fail to invite you. And they will, even if they're not eating, they'll bring you something to eat. It was, uh, yeah. I'd like to, it's hard to, to stop on this one that I'm so familiar with, but um, the Lao people, I remember one time when I took, one family I took a head of cabbage to, as I was leaving, one of the children, I overheard one of the children say to the, the mother, wow, she loves us so much. <laughs> and so that's how to, that's one way to communicate love, to share. And it doesn't have to be expensive. I know what it's going to share. Thai and Lao cultures and many of the Southeast Asian cultures share and share alike. Typically in American culture, if we're going to invite someone over, we plan ahead, figure out how many people are coming. We make sure, okay, we've got just the right, you know, number of plates on the table for everyone and you know we have the right amount of food and so forth and if someone comes and we're afraid that it's not enough we might not invite them because you know but in their culture whatever they have they share it may be a little bit of rice and one fish <laughs> and if that's all it is they will still not fail to they will still invite whoever comes and they, they just, just and share. They want to come. And they want you and to come. Yeah. You think, oh, I may not be welcome. Then you can actually be offending them. Right. So it's important always <laughs> take time. Yes. Yes, it's it's important to take time. That that means so much to them for you to take time with them. And. Um, so for the Lao language group, we actually have a church plant in Holland. And Milesi has helped to plant that church. And um, the pastor actually is, <laughs> we go way back, my husband, before he was my husband in Sacramento, we met him, I was starting to tell that picture before we, that story before we started. Um, I had been working with refugees, and a friend of mine went over 
to, to Thailand and work in refugee camps as well. And he called me um, one day and he said, I have someone, I know someone you need in your ministry there. Well, I like to say, little did he nor I know how much I would need him in my ministry. He's now my husband. <laughs> but um, at that time, he was, had newly arrived to help us with the Lao church plant. Uh, my husband, Go, that is. And so he was looking around for ways to connect with the young people there in the apartment complex. And he saw some probably 10 to 12-year-olds playing basketball. And so he said, can I play with you? And they said, sure. And they were Lao boys. And he said, you'll have to teach me how to play because I don't, in Thailand, we don't play basketball. They, he was very good, though, at the craw, which is, it's similar to volleyball, except you can use anything but your arms and hands to hit the ball over. You can use your head. It's a, it's a small rattan, woven rattan ball. You can use your head. You can use your... Like the soccer ball. Yeah, like soccer. Right. I think back um, some languages called football, but it's technically a soccer ball. <laughs> right, right. Everywhere we call it soccer. The Every... football. That's right. Yeah, outside the U.S. it's called football. In other countries called football, but it's actually soccer ball. <laughs> to us, it's soccer, right. So they said, sure, and they had a lot of fun teaching my husband, uh, teaching Go how to, how to play basketball. And when they were done with the game, he said, anybody want to learn guitar? There was an apartment we were renting in the apartment complex to hold Bible studies and just to be a ministry center. And two, two of the guys went with him to learn, or maybe, maybe more, I think it was these two, to learn some guitar. And after he finished teaching him a little bit of guitar, he, he said, he started telling him about God. And long story short, one of those is now married to one of my best friends, and he works in the general conference, works for ADRA International in their IT department. The other one, Pastor Sang Tong, is now a pastor in the is Michigan Sa Conference. Sang, oh, oh, San, San Suvanapungan is, okay. yes, that's yep. the one that works. <laughs> in the GC. And he came with Jeffrey the year that uh, right. he was visiting us. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> and um, oh, he's a blast. <laughs> oh, he's incredible. He's a lot of fun. And <laughs> you know saying. <laughs> and um, yeah, the other one is now is Pastor Sang. And it's interesting, his name is Sang Tong Sang Tip, which means golden light, eternal light. I think God must have inspired his parents. His dad, uh, when they named him, his dad was the chief of a village. And if you want to see an amazing, uh, he was with ASAP for a while. He's now hired by the Michigan Conference. Actually, we're partnering with Michigan Conference to empower him to 
continue the church plant that he helped to grow for quite some time, and and then for him also to be able to uh, coordinate our work among the Lao Division Wide. Um, if you want an inspiring story, we have a video about his life. Um, Hope Channel Let's Pray program did a did a video on an experience um, when he decided to to become a pastor. His um, his mother just was very disappointed. She was very disappointed because she she felt like she was a failure. You can you can imagine if one of your children decided to leave your religion and join another religion. She felt like a failure. And she actually tried to commit suicide. And that story that was on the eve of the day that he was to register for for school to at, at Weimar to become a pastor. And whew, that's quite a story. So if you're interested, I think that's on our refugeeministries.org website. Um, if not, just reach out to me, which let me give you for those who don't. Did you get one? Yeah. You, you got one. You have one? <laughs> I don't know if you've seen our new... <laughs> but um, this, is, this is my cell phone number and my email address. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. But that's just a little insight in, into how you can, you know, just a few tips on how to make friends with Lao people. The Zomi are from Myanmar, the former Burma, and they came more recently. And the two of our main populations of Zomi in Michigan are in uh, Grand Rapids and Battle Creek. And we do have a pastor who is incredible. I think. He was here what, Tuesday, I think. Yes, yes. He was here. His wife is hoping to stop by today. Incredible family there. Uh, his, his name is Pastor Ngai Din, S.B. Ngai Din. And uh, his daughter actually started a community services center in Grand Rapids for the refugees there. Um, they have a son, Kai Kai. So their daughter is Katie. Amazing children. Um, Kai Kai is the, he's a pastor. He was pastoring on the West Coast, I believe, Washington or Oregon. Um, he's back at Andrews doing his MDiv and he's organizing as a, a convention for young people from various language groups from Myanmar, from Myanmar. the Zomi, Mizo, Karen, um, and any other smaller language group. Um, 
He's doing an incredible job. Very good planner and organizer. Very humble, doesn't take himself too seriously. He'll laugh at himself. <laughs> Just a lot of fun to be around. So the Zomi language group, again, very... Now this language group actually has had more of a history in the Adventist church. So if they there's um, uh, David Anderson uh, went to... Reach, went to Chin Hills. That's an incredible story. There's a book that's been written about it by the... Um, the book was written by the daughter-in-law of the, the missionary the missionary that went. Um, they've been to Arzomi conventions. And the story of how they were reached, the God's leading, the timing, it's incredible. Um, so the Lao and the Zomi, um, the Lao come from a Buddhist background. The Zomi, I believe, were similar to the Karen, came from more of an animist background, grew up in a Buddhist country, but, but many have become Christians. And we, we have a pastor for that language group. The Kinyarwanda language group is Actually, we are in an in, currently in an influx of about 50,000 Kinyarwanda-speaking refugees from the Congo, Rwanda, and Burundi, uh, across North America. And one of our largest churches in Michigan is a Kinyarwanda-speaking church in Grand Rapids. There are about 450 members. And that's one of two Kinyarwanda churches in Grand Rapids. <laughs> Um, and there are, there's a Kinyarwanda congregation in Lansing as well. Um, and they, they have a longer history in Adventism than the others, but, but they have somehow less of a network or less, con fewer connections in terms of, uh, healthcare or, these types of things, they have seem to have more needs, have find more challenges um, in some ways, uh, not not linguistically as much as in uh, more economically in, in terms of their health. And Elder Bob Stewart, our multi-ethnic ministries director for Michigan Conference, um, was very active in helping them to be able. It's a miracle how God used him to connect with the right people at the right time and help them to get a, a church of their own in Grand Rapids. <clears throat> um, so the Arabic language group, of course, they come from Muslim countries. And it's interesting, Muslims from different countries have different some are very loyal to Islam. One or two are kind of tired of it and looking for something else. Uh, we met a refugee from Iran recently who's an architect. And typically, refugees from the Middle East tend to be uh, come with much higher education. And so it's 
they find, you know, in some ways they have fewer challenges because they're better educated, and yet there's, see, there's more prejudice, a more misunderstanding of them and their culture and their beliefs. And um, so, uh, and we mentioned a little bit in an earlier presentation how, um, yes, yeah, many things that we've heard about Muslims in general are really just a description of the most radical. <laughs> and it's easy for us as human beings to compare our best with their worst. But I like to share an experience that I have, that I had. The first Muslim family I visited was in near Southern Adventist University. I had a friend down there that I went to school with, and he, I, I, we went to school together at Weimar, and then I happened to be, I had a speaking appointment down at Southern, and we ran into each other, and he said, oh, I have a family you have got to meet. He said, I have a test in a little bit, but you have to meet this family. I'll tell you what, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll just drop you off at their house, and then I'll go take my test, because, and Gabby's going to be by, so my friend Gabby Phillips, uh, who coordinates as Adventist Muslim relations for the North American Division lives in Chattanooga, and he said she's coming over. She's going to be visiting them, so she can pick you up and give you a ride back to where you're staying. <laughs> so that was quite an interesting experience for me. That was my first time in the home of a Muslim family, and I have been a missionary overseas for four years. I had worked with refugees for from various countries, from Southeast Asia primarily, for years. But I found myself a little bit nervous or uneasy in that Muslim home. It was your first time all over again. Yes, first time all over again. I didn't know how to act or what to say. I mean, they were very gracious. She brought out um, some tea and some little snacks. It was very very pretty, the platter she did, it was very well organized, very well presented, and she didn't speak a lot of English, but we could converse a little bit. Her husband was asleep because he worked for Amazon, but he worked nights, and so he was asleep. So she and I talked for a while, and then after a little while, he woke up, and pretty soon after that, Gabby arrived, and then everything was comfortable because she knew just what to say, what not to say, and it's ama it was amazing to me how, how comfortable they are speaking of their faith. It's not like it is with us, typically we're not sure what people believe, and so we, it's easy to avoid bringing up the topic of God or the Bible or religion, just because we're not sure what they'll think of it, but they just speak openly of their faith, and my experience in that home, actually, Gabby asked if they had any prayer requests. And he did. He said, would you pray for me? Because I am, I am very grateful to have a job. I am so grateful to have a job. But about 40% 
of the books that we package to send out are things that, and I'm trying to remember the Arabic word he used that means filthy. In other words, it was probably pornographic. And he said, I don't know about you, but we, I believe that the way I make my money affects my children. The, the way I make my money, um, I, that money that, that I use to buy food for them goes through their veins, and, you know. It's like I, blood money or something like that. Right, right. Exactly. It's like if you worked at a bar or something. I mean, it's just, and he just, he, he just felt filthy. I mean, he just felt like, and he, he shared with us how he had been in like three voyages at sea to be able to, after, you know, fleeing from his country, he had been on three separate boat voyages and he had seen people die of dehydration or starvation or, and he, ex he described one experience in which he had, um, they, they were on a fishing boat and they saw a big ship and the ship started to come toward them. And they were so happy that it looked like they were going to get help that some of them jumped off to swim to the ship. And then they heard an announcement, we can't help you. And one, of, one man specifically, he just can't, couldn't get him out of his mind. He was too far from the fishing boat to swim back and too weak to swim back. And as a wave, just before a wave covered him, he waved goodbye and went under. And this man said, I don't know why God saved me alive. When so many other people died, I've witnessed so many tragic deaths on those trips. I don't know why God saved my life, but somehow I believe God has a better purpose for me than for me to work in a place where I process unclean things for society. And I thought to myself, this is not the, this is not what we hear about on the news. They, this family has a conscience. They have moral convictions. They obviously want to do what's right. They may not know much about the Bible, or they may not understand Jesus to be the Messiah or, or God, but, but they want to do what's right. And so I had a come in, Pastor. So I realized, wow, I have had a very, very clouded, mistaken picture of Muslims. And actually, the word for Muslim means submitted, yeah, right? Submitted. We've mm -hmm. had, I've had a personal good experience while I was at college, single. Um, I went through the Adventist College as a broad program on my return uh -huh. flight. My seatmate was from Syria, 
And then eventually I kind of figure out that he's very likely Islamic. Not not that I was very uh, gabby or anything at that time. I was much quieter <laughs> and shy. But um, at one point they're bringing around the meal and it's some meat on a sandwich. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of looking at it suspiciously and you know, I just leave it alone. Well, he gets up at one point, walks to the back, comes back, sits down and says, it's okay, it's turkey. And I was just instant. It was like, oh, yeah, okay. They understand, you know, clean foods versus unclean foods. I think maybe they don't understand seafood is clear as the same. But I was just like, wow, that's interesting. At that point in time, I didn't really have an interest in, in, uh, in eating it. But I was just, oh, okay. And then later, as we're missionaries in Thailand on a trip back to the States, we flew the uh, last leg of our journey our family on an airline seems like it was silver or something like that we get into the check-in and it's like super super late mm-hmm. almost midnight or something we have two toddlers absolutely completely worn out asleep as can be and we roll up to the desk with our luggage and the lady starts oh my your babies oh. preferential service was instantaneously arranged and yet there was one american there out of all these muslim attired um, attendants who was going, you can't do that. Da, 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 da. I'm going to call the big boss. And I'm thinking, the big boss, the guy who owns the airline is Muslim. Then this lady is probably going to, the lady who's complaining is probably going to lose her job. You know, the American <laughs> who isn't <laughs> Muslim. Mm, yeah. Because, I mean, just yeah. instantaneous. The Asians were always very helpful for us with our kids. We had a load of yeah. kids and they would just flock to us, here, we'll take your bags, we'll help you get what you need to go, and everything. And this was our first experience as a family. And they were just, they came, they brought a wheelchair for my wife, and then put one of the kids in her lap, and I'm carrying the other one. Wow. It was just like so, wow, so generous and everything. And I remembered, they really do have a culture and a value for that. Yes. And by the way, when it comes, if you think of values that so much, mm-hmm. Muslims are giving financially to causes more than than any other group of people, period. They, there's a lot that they value. That's true. They're, they're doing a lot of philanthropy here in North America. They're seeing how well-off when you're, when you're kind and hospitable to people and such. God sees that. He sees Amen. that as part of that which agrees with his character and his way of living. Amen. So. Amen. Beautiful. Thank you for that amazing testimony. Um, I'm not going to go terribly deep, but I would like to give you... Um, yes. Um, I'm going to give you... Gabby Phillips' information. Um, let's see. Or I could... Mm-hmm. Let me just give you... Oh, my. I guess I don't have it. Actually, feel free to call or text or email me for her information if you like, because... She is, um, I guess it's not as forthcoming as I, um, um, 
I have her phone number. Actually, so I will give you her email address. Okay, I'll just put it here. Gabriella Phillips. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Okay, there's her information. Dot <laughs> org. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Not formatted very well, but that's that's her email address. And if you'd like her phone number, just contact me. I stepped away without my phone today. So. Um, but Gabby worked with Muslims in Turkey, and she now coordinates Adventist Muslim relations for the North American Division. She's Hispanic, but she has an incredible understanding of Muslims and how to reach them, and it's so refreshing. She. Uh, Right, thank you for mentioning the bridges because Muslims do not eat pork and so that's something we have in common. When you meet a Muslim, don't claim to be a Christian because a Christian to them is what they see in the movies from Hollywood. Actually, I don't automatically uh, wait and, and hear right. whether who, whoever we're communicating with. I mean, internally, I'm Christian because I identify with Christ, but what is right. it going to mean to them? So I do not automatically use a phrase that could actually mean the opposite of what I intend, so it's not an immediate point of, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Could you sit closer so I can just turn the mic on when you speak? <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, it's good to wait until you understand a little bit more about the person before you identify your... Um, your religious faith, because to a to another Christian, to say you're a Christian means you're a follower of Christ. Mm -hmm. But to a Muslim, the term Christian means someone who's immoral, immodest, drinks alcohol, eats pork. So it's much better to identify as a Seventh-day Adventist. And then usually, usually they will not know, and you can describe what that means. Well, we don't eat pork, we don't drink, uh, we, but I mean, there's much beyond that, but, but like, um, like my husband likes to say, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. So whatever refugee group Show that you care first. I, I was, I was on, I was on a plane one time, and there was uh, my seatmate was a man who was from China. He was working for a large corporation in Chicago, and we got into a good conversation. I shared with him my burden for for helping refugees to be able to attend Adventist schools. And I, you know, I told him about our educational system and how difficult, you know, how far behind refugees tend to be because of the refugee journey, having to flee from their home country. And so 
and then live in refugee camps where there are very few educational opportunities. Mm-hmm. And, and I s- that's true. Right, undocumented immigrants are another. Although, <coughs> yeah, thank you. Um, so we got into a deeper conversation. And I thought, you know, I think, anyway, he was giving me ideas of how I could raise funds for refugees to attend our Adventist schools. And so I thought, you know, I would like to ask him a question. And so I said, when you came to America, is there anything that was difficult for you? Is there anything, because I I told him I give seminars and I would like to be able to share with people how they can welcome international guests better. And he hesitated. He didn't want to say anything negative. But I said, no, please share. And he said, okay. Well, it, it seems like, and he was so polite and tactful. And <laughs> but he said, yeah, it kind of seems like Americans like to be the teachers. <laughs> and that's all he said. But it's true, when we do mission work, we like to teach health, we like to teach English, we like to teach fitness or, or teach something. That's one of the first things that comes to mind when we often, when we think of missionary work, we, we want to have something to give. But I love to say, connect with respect. Remember how Jesus, with the woman at the well, he asked for a drink of water? He asked her to provide something to him that he needed. And I can tell you, when I was little, my dad had an accident. He was, uh, well, my parents were teachers, but they decided to do something different that we could do as a family. So he became what we could lovingly call a tree surgeon. And he would cut down diseased trees and haul them away or trim prune other trees. And um, one time he was on a, a loader cutting down a tree. So there was a, there was a tree that needed to be removed, but there were power lines on every side. So there's no other choice but to take it down limb by limb. So he was up about 30 feet standing on this platform uh, on what we called a farmhand, but it was kind of a loader. And um, he had a piece of plywood on it, and he was reaching up to cut a limb, and it came off quicker than he expected, and it and hit him on the head, the, 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 the end of it. The, hit him on the head and stunned him. And here he is with the chainsaw. Did he get hurt? Yes, he did. He actually, when that happened, he, he started to fall, and he knew that what he should do to have, be less likely to break bones would be to curl up in a ball. But he could think it, but he couldn't get his muscles to do it, somehow stunned as he was by the, the impact. And so he just fell on his head. And the chainsaw was running, and it actually tore his pant leg, but didn't hurt him. And he was... Did he survive? He survived. Um, 
Wow. It was almost lunchtime, and a church member lived nearby, and she had invited my parents to her home for lunch. And so um, they went, they said, maybe that's a good time to take a lunch break. And so they walked over there just a few blocks, and my dad had a habit of, he would, he would take a little nap usually before lunch. Just He was very energetic, very hardworking, and he would just get a little breather right before or after lunch, usually before. And uh, so he decided to lie down, rest a little bit while my mother helped the lady put the finishing touches on the meal. And then they called him to eat, and he started to get up, and this, it just felt like electricity shot from his neck throughout his body, and he could, it, like, pain, and he could not get up. And so they called the ambulance, and he had... When he fell, evidently, it, it cracked a vertebrae, but it, he could still function fine, but somehow in getting up, it, it, it pinched his spinal cord. And so he was actually in bed for months. And, uh, yeah. Was he paralyzed? He was partially paralyzed on his left side. Um, I remember when he thought he was getting stronger, he would read books to us. That was one of my favorite times, <laughs> except that it was hard for my parents when I got to spend a lot of time with Daddy. And he would read, you know, the Pathfinder books, Five Foot Two Giant and all those. Oh, loved that time we spent together. He'd read the Bible to us. Anyway, when he thought he was getting stronger, one day he said, can you kind of pull on my arm, I think I'm getting stronger. Can you tell me if I'm getting strong? And I pulled on it, and it was just simple to pull, and I thought, oh, my strong daddy. That was scarier to me than seeing him laying in bed for months. <laughs> it's funny. But, um, but he, he actually survived, and after months... There was less and less paralysis, and he ended up, he, he liked to say, I'm paralyzed from here down. He had no feeling in his left index finger from here down. Everything else healed up, and he was able to function like before, but there was that little reminder of how God had basically saved him from being a paraplegic. But, whoops, I forgot to... <laughs> <laughs> why I told that story, but, um... Well, thank God you survived. That's all it Amen, counts. amen. There was a connection to what we were talking about, but, um... Yes. Yes, to show respect. Um, so connect with respect. Basically, ask a favor. And um, there's research showing, you know, often we do when we're going to help a language group, we do a needs assessment. But have you ever thought of doing a strengths assessment? Every culture has strengths as well. And so maybe you could do both, but if you have to choose between one and another, yes, that's a good idea. Assess weaknesses in your own culture as well. Thailand, it's like 
you have this respect for elders that our culture yes. has lost. You know? Yes. You have this that is so much closer to what I read in the Bible. Wow. You have, you know, yes. mine lost this way. Oh, okay. Well, American, they may have something here. Maybe for the most part, it was like, wow, look. There <laughs> are right. There are so many aspects of other cultures that are closer to biblical values than our own Western culture. And as we go into another culture, if we are looking for, isn't it interesting how we find what we look for? <laughs> if you're looking for the strengths in another culture, then you can affirm their strengths, or you can affirm things in their culture. That, that illustrate the values in Matthew 5, the meekness of Jesus, or whatever Bible value it is, if you're watching for that kind of a connection between their culture and the Bible, then you can affirm what's good in their culture and use that as a connection to the Bible. You could say, what you do reminds me of what the Bible says, that actually your culture illustrates to that to me better than my own culture. And that can give them a positive um, feeling about the Bible, and it can help. And since all of our cultures <laughs> originated with Adam and Eve and later Noah with God is the origin, so there are things in every culture. And when you, we go into another culture, keep in mind, God's been there long yes. before we got there. Look and see where the Spirit yes. has He's working. And there may even be a possibility, the lost ten tribes, the yes. blood, the genetic probability mathematically of the blood of those of that. So it's like realizing that there may be some aspect of somebody from the Northern Ten that knew about this and all the way over there, and the Native American. There's probability that Native American could have even been from Solomon's empire. You know, there, there's really interesting things like that. Mm -hmm. And you look and you see, how did this get to here? The Ethiopian, how did, you know, that connection all the way over through um, to Solomon or something like that? How, yes. how did they learn? that went that way, or someone brought it there, or James made his way possibly up to China after, you know, Christ's resurrection. Yes. Things like that are really, or Tom's, and Yes. They're really interesting. Amen. Have you seen the book Sabbath Roots? I, I think I It shows it. how they were keeping Sabbath in Africa long before we in North America learned about Sabbath. Speaking of which, I want to introduce you to Pastor Bernard. Pastor Bernard, we, we spoke about the um, King Rwanda language group. Yeah. And I failed to even introduce him. He's the pastor of that 450-member church in Grand Rapids. Seven, oh, yeah, 700. There are people who are not registered. Wow. We have more than... Uh, you know our church? Yes. Right now, I split in two churches. Uh, some of them, they, they are staying in the chapel, around 200. Mm -hmm. And we have the field, uh, the, the sanctuary, 500 seats. <laughs> I don't know how to do in the future because uh, people are still coming. Mm -hmm. And... Um, 
Uh, what's um, I think? Would you come up here? Yeah. It's <laughs> not done, but yeah. just share a little bit. Yeah, I think that uh, for the the future, the church will be uh, small for all, and uh, people are still coming. People are moving from different states and come to Michigan because of the church. And uh, I don't know how to do. We would like to request, if possible, to have to raise a fund uh, to uh, to create more groups in different states where they can be have hope. Because some people don't have a church where they can worship God, and sometimes the, uh, people, like you said, because of, of culture, they are lost. And um, the consequence is that uh, parents lose their children because they don't have church. Church is uh, making people together. And um, uh, some parents also, some of them, they are more influenced by some caseworkers. They ask them to work on Sabbath. They say, oh, if you don't work on Sabbath, you will not have a job. My first job, is to take care of those new coming. And uh, I don't share with the gospel. Gospel come. The first thing is to welcome them yes. and, uh, and pray with them and show that we have different culture, but we need to have the culture of God. Yeah. We need uh, to help them. Uh, one of the agencies who uh, is carrying the refugees, he said, Pastor, you are doing five. Uh, we are doing uh, a job of five caseworkers <laughs> because you are helping yes. people in education. <laughs> you are finding a job, jobs for uh, refugees. You are giving them right to go to DHS and find benefits. Uh, you are giving them um, right for. You, you, you try to give them to uh, to read their their paperwork and uh, you 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 work to, with them in order to be sustainable we don't think if we can afford you <laughs> one time they asked me if i can be one of their officers i said no i have my own job it to serve all yes. <laughs> all the yes. people with no discrimination. <laughs> God appoint me to work with the refugees. I'd like to suggest, if possible, to have I can raise, you can raise, anyone can raise uh, to raise funds. Maybe we can have some labors to work with refugees to help them in um, their daily problems. It can be a lay uh, person, but it's tough. It's difficult right now. But we need, like you said, in a North American division to see if you can help those people. Sometimes I leave my church, go to Ohio. I went last two weeks in Columbus, Ohio, uh, to help a new congregation. And uh, I brought one of them, my choir, to sing with them. We worked with the Spanish on Sabbath, the last Sabbath. We had baptism. Myself, I was not understanding uh, Spanish, but 
because they were singing Seven Day Adventist hymn, <laughs> I was understanding yes. in my in my own language. And uh, when the president of Ohio Conference came, he uh, he preached in English. I was understanding. I was able to uh, to understand. My people were not understanding, but they were feeling that they are in church. They are in home. I think. God bless North American vision because they care of refugees, but we still have more to do. Amen. We still have more to do. So I'll let that be our closing thought for today. There's so much you can do. If you find refugees, be friends with them, and, and don't be afraid to ask how things are really going for them. Yeah. And if there's anything, right? <laughs> And if there's anything you can do, ask if there's something you can do to help. The problem is, like, today we have Muslims because they are coming too many. Yes. And, and we, need to, we need to think about to help them because right, right. they cannot change their mind to be seven-day Adventists right away. But we need philosophically to... To take care of them, to yes. show them that we love them. We do. And may I say this? If you meet a Muslim and if you're able to do something for them or whatever, mm-hmm. or even not, once if you have a con- conversation with someone, pray with them. Don't hesitate to pray with them. Yes. And I would just give you two tips. You know, as Adventists, there's a posture of prayer. You know, even if I don't say let's pray or even before I say let's pray if I do this you know <laughs> I fold my hands and kind of bow my head you know I'm about to pray for Muslims <laughs> or in Asia the more of the praying hand style <laughs> uh, for Muslims the prayer posture is open palms yes so if, so at the end of your conversation, you could say, may I pray for you or may, may I ask God to bless you? You can mention God. It's not a problem. Mm-hmm. And, and just put your hands out like this. That'll say more than, you know, <laughs> whether they know English or not. <laughs> and the meaning of this is that you're in a, you're ready to receive what God gives you. Mm-hmm. And so you you hold your hands like this throughout the prayer, and then at the end of the prayer, you do this kind of um, as if you are taking those blessings in your hand and putting them on you, your face, and just kind of come like this. So the end of the prayer, just, in other words, you're receiving them in your hands, but you're not just holding them away from yourself. You want God's blessings to to envelop you, to cover you. To, so, and then at the end, say in your name, amen, because um, they believe that Jesus was a prophet. Yeah. But they don't see him as God. Mm-hmm. But it's it's best not to get into controversial yeah. issues at the beginning. So just let it be, um, so just say in your name. In, and in, yeah. in your name, amen. Because they believe on Allah's story of uh, Naaman, the leper. 
Do you notice within that how it goes into at the end? I'm going to worship your God now. But when I go back to my country, look what they do. What can I do about that? And Elisha mm-hmm. says, do what you can. Amen. It's what okay. God knows the heart. Yes. And so it's like, don't put, and so then along comes probably Acts 15, mm-hmm. and then all there, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. No. Here are some really critical points. All the rest mm-hmm. of this they'll learn eventually. Over time, it's being yes. taught to them in the synagogue. Don't worry about it. Let it occur in its natural mm-hmm. time. Let God be, and His Holy Spirit be the one that leads them into the next step, and let their journey be their journey. Not all have to be at the same place of the journey. <laughs> right. And often when we try to t- thank you, when we try to teach others what we know, sometimes we're missing um, it, what they notice that we're lacking. <laughs> so it's good to go in as a learner of what's good in their culture and to connect that yeah. with God's word. Oh, there's so much more we could go on, but let's bow heads for. Can we pray first for the recording? We have a limit in time, and then you can ask the question. Whoever has to go can go, and then love to have a question. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for the precious people that you're sending to us, that they may learn the precious truths that you've entrusted to us. Help us also to be teachable. Help us to be learners in the school of Christ. Help us to see the lessons that you have for us in your word, and also as illustrated in the various cultures that you have brought right here among us. Father, we pray that you will use us to reflect your love so that many more souls can be in the kingdom as a result. Thank you so much. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2023 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.